Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this month's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Pearson Rabbits, my personal disability and life insurance agent. Four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, at least three years of residency, and potentially a fellowship. By the time you are done with training, you will have spent over a decade making a tremendous educational, financial, and career investment in yourself, in your patients. You likely have a few hundred thousand dollars in debt that is not dischargeable in bankruptcy and accumulating interest at a pretty sickening speed. You also have deferred 10 years of retirement investment. You've deferred that first decade where that compound interest really starts to add up and work in your favor, and you've delayed that. And because of those two factors, even the most financially savvy physician is is significantly less financially ahead than their salary would make you think. If you lose your income due to disability, it's an extremely bad financial situation to be in. And so you need to be smart. You need to be careful here. Go to www.pearsonravits.com, set up an appointment to get all your insurance questions answered. You should be buying this as a resident. Now to our episode for this month, we're not going to do an episode of the game this month. About a year ago, I did a episode on opiate use disorder and buprenorphine, and as a result of that episode, one of my old attendings actually reached out to me um, and invited me to do a speech down at my old program in Tennessee. That kind of snowballed into some other talks that I've been giving, and so opiate use disorder has actually become one of my favorite topics in medicine, and I've done a ton of research on this topic, and so today... You'd have to, I'm not going to give you the full lecture. Obviously, that'd be a lot. It's still going to be a long episode, but we're going to cover a few specific pieces in this episode. So um, let's kind of get into it. About 30 years ago, there was a company called Purdue Pharma, and they approached the medical community, and they said, doctors, all over this country, people are suffering. They're depressed. Their relationships are strained. They can't hold down a job. And the reason they are suffering is because they are slaves to their pain. We have created an amazing drug for the treatment of pain called Oxycontin. And we know, we know, we know what you're thinking. You're a little bit nervous about prescribing Oxycontin to your patients, given all the heroin use you're seeing out on the streets. But Oxycontin isn't just any opioid. It has special pharmacokinetics. You see, it has delayed absorption. And because of that, not only is it not euphoric, but it's very, very safe with less than 1% of patients who take it becoming addicted. We feel strongly that Oxycontin should be given in every hospital, ER, clinic across this country to help you know when to do it. We encourage you to use something called the pain scale. Now, in patients who just have mild pain, you can treat them as you normally would. Give them some ice. Take a Tylenol. But in patients who develop moderate to severe pain, a pain score of eight or more, it would be cruel not to give them such a safe and effective medication. You will give this medication to some people. It will seem like they are getting worse. But if you do have a patient who has breakthrough pain, the problem is not with our drug. What you need to do is double the dose. Thank you for your time. And with that sales pitch, Purdue Pharma instigated and triggered one of the greatest public health crises in the history of this country. And now here I am almost 30 years later, and I'm going to record for you. Med students, residents, doctors all over this country, people are suffering. 
they're depressed, their relationships are strained, they can't hold down a job. The reason they are suffering is because they are slaves to their addiction, they are slaves to their brain. There is an amazing drug for the treatment of addiction called buprenorphin. And I know what you're thinking. You're nervous about prescribing an opioid to your patients, given all the fentanyl use you're seeing out on the streets. But buprenorphin isn't just any opioid. It has special pharmacokinetics. You see, it only partially agonizes the mu receptor. And because of that, not only is it not euphoric, but it's very, very safe. With less than 1% of patients who take it overdosing, I feel like this medicine should be given in every hospital, clinic, and ER in this country. And to help you know when to give it, I encourage you to use something called the cow scale. Now, in patients who just have mild withdrawal symptoms, just treat them as you normally would. Give them some Tylenol, some Imodium, some fluids, maybe a little Ativan. But in patients who are developing moderate to severe signs of opiate withdrawal, a cow score of eight or more, it would be cruel not to give them and start them on such a safe and effective medication. You will give this to some of the patients and it will seem like they get worse. But if you do have a patient who has precipitated withdrawal, the issue is not with this medicine. And what you need to do is immediately double the dose. Thank you for your time. And I do this little exercise at the beginning to emphasize for you that if you are listening to this podcast and you're not comfortable with the idea of medication-assisted treatment for any number of reasons, especially given the history of this epidemic, I don't blame you. I've been there. I don't think that's entirely unreasonable. And that is why what I've decided to do with this lecture, what I've had some success with, is rather than talking about how to initiate buprenorphine and what doses to do and the logistics of setting up like an opiate follow-up pathway and things like that, I'm going to make a more fundamental point. What you do matters. We're going to talk about three things in this episode, which again is an abbreviated version of the full lecture. The first is why should we care? The second is what is opiate use disorder? And third, we're going to talk about treatment. We have treatment that works. So let's get started. First, why should we care? And there's two reasons. The first reason is because lots and lots of people are dying. If you go to the CDC right now and you pull all the causes of death for all people in the United States, Opiate overdose, not any of the other opiate-related harms and not the other drugs that you overdose on. Just opiate overdose is easily within the top 10 causes of death. Their most recent data set was 2020. Interestingly, there's another uh, organization out there called the National Safety Council, and they track causes of death from all the different types of accidents. When you think about the topics that we cover in emergency medicine and you compare that to opiate overdose, the number of people dying of opiate overdose just completely blows everything else out of the water. 74 people have died of anaphylaxis and bee stings. Again, this is 2020 data. 74 people died of that. 19,383 died of gun violence. 2,063 were stabbed to death, right? Like, remember all the lectures about being, like, penetrating trauma to the neck and things like that? 2,063 were stabbed to death. 17 were struck by lightning. I had a whole lecture once on lightning strikes. 2,951 died from fires and inhalation injuries, right? All, multiple lectures on that topic. 277 died of being electrocuted. Uh, 642 drowned. 42,000 died in motor vehicle accidents. 
only nine died of venomous snakes. I saw this article the other day. People wanted to make dedicated venomous snake centers. Completely crazy. No one dies from venomous snake bites. Nine people. Nine people died in a whole year. 71,000 people died of opiate overdose. You take all of these other categories and you add it together and you still like all these other things that we've had lectures on, you still have more people dying just of opiate overdose. Another way of looking at this is if you just exclude, if you exclude old people, so people <laughs> over the age of 50, I pissed some people off there. But if you exclude old people, opiate overdose is by far the leading cause of death in, in young adults in this country. It kills more young people, again, than homicide, than suicide, than car accidents, than cancer. It kills more young people than sepsis, strokes, heart attacks. It is by far the leading cause of death of young adults in this country. Just to give you an idea of how, the mortality of these patients, when you have a patient that comes in after a non-fatal accidental opiate overdose, something we see all the time in the ER, right? They, they're unconscious. You give them naloxone. They wake up and they say, oh, oops, or I didn't take anything, but you know they did because they're pinpoint pupils and everything, right? Most studies will say that their one-year mortality is about 5%. Just to put that in perspective, if you go to the actuarial tables at the um, Social Security Administration, do you have any idea at what age your one-year mortality begins to approach 5%? And it's different for men and women, just based off age, you know, without, you know, any other comorbidities involved. You think your, your parents or your grandparents, at what age does your one-year mortality approach 5%? 79 in men, 82 in women. That 19-year-old with a non-fatal overdose has the same mortality as my 82-year-old grandmother, okay? So lots and lots of people are dying from this. Opiate use disorder is by far one of the worst scourges on medicine, which is the second reason you should care. It was caused entirely by us. It was caused by us. Let's talk big pharma first. So the classic big pharma example, although there's other companies now that have gone down too, but would be Purdue Pharma. That's what um, Dope Sick was about, okay, that if you watch that on Hulu. These big pharma companies did a couple things. So when, when the opiate epidemic started, they were able to convince the entire medical community by manipulating data and selling hard and lying. And they knew that, they knew that this wasn't true, but they, they ignored that. In that sense, this is how they've lost lawsuits and stuff because they knew what was going on. They were able to convince everybody that opioids were not addictive if it was given to people who have real pain. That was, that was how they phrased it. They used this like 19, it was like a 1970s, 1980s letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine that had no methods. It just said like, we gave this to a bunch of people in the hospital. No one seemed to have any issues with it. And that was the mega study that this whole thing was leveraged on and built on. And they sold to this idea to, to all of medicine that opiates are not addictive if you are treating real pain, okay? When people started overdosing on it, so this is where it gets really, really pisses me off. <laughs> so when people started dying of this, they started dying of opiate overdose. So they're dying of Oxycontin overdoses, okay, as well as other prescription opioids. They gaslighted and blamed the victims. These drug companies have you ever have you ever heard anyone say don't let don't let a few bad eggs ruin it for people with real pain? Have you ever heard someone said that? I hear it all the time. These drug companies made that shit up. 
Because here's the thing. Yeah, people have real pain, but those weren't bad eggs. And that's why it was sneaky. They were, they were normal people. They were like you and me. And they came in because they threw out their back or because they were having headaches or whatever. They sprained their ankle and they got free 30-day supplies um, coupons for Oxycontin. And so they would take these pills for 30 days and their pain would keep getting worse and they keep doubling the dose. And they were, these were normal people that were overdosing. These weren't bad people, you guys. But the, the pharmaceutical company said, don't let the bad eggs ruin it for people with real pain. They doubled down. They buried tons of data that says that their medication was addictive. When parents would say, like, because people didn't even know about this medicine, parents would put online websites and things like that saying, my, my kid died of an Oxycontin overdose. Like, we need to raise awareness of this. This is being abused. Purdue Pharma actually would target those parents. They would pay pain patients to reach out to those parents and they would spin it and they would say, can you please come and speak for us about the dangers of prescription drug abuse? And then the parents would kind of buy into that and they'd get paid, that kind of thing. But the problem was, is people weren't abusing the prescription medicines. They were taking them as prescribed and then they would get addicted and then they couldn't stop using them. And then they were quote abusing them, but it was caused entirely by bullshit from big pharma. Okay, so that's one way that this was caused, but it was not just big pharma that caused this. So who distributes all these medicines, right? So Purdue Pharma makes them, but Purdue Pharma is not the one that's stockpiling them and shipping them out to every individual pharmacy. So you have this problem with all these distributors. So you have this crazy stuff happening. So there'd be like a town somewhere and they were averaging like 5,000, if I recall, over 5,000 pills per patient per year or something crazy like that, right? You had one town, it had 400 people. I want to say it was like they got 5 million doses of Oxycontin shipped to this like tiny little town, okay? You had one town, I want to say it was like several hundred, they were shipping several hundred prescriptions for Oxycontin per day. It was like that kind of stuff, okay? And I don't have the specific numbers in front of me. That's not the point. I, I show more of that in the main lecture. But they, they ignored this. So these companies have a duty to report that kind of stuff. And they didn't. Because why? Because of profit. And there's all sorts of internal memos of them making fun of people who are hooked on drugs. One of them was a bevy of pillbillies just came out as a video talking about how um, if the FDA cl cracks down on one site, they can send their pills like to another place or something. And all the people will go there. Okay? So that was messed up. The FDA, so like the watchdog who's supposed to be screening for this stuff, they're, they're political. So this is all politics, right? But it's this idea of a revolving door where people who are in charge of these organizations and regulating certain things decide to retire and then take on jobs at the companies that they're regulating. So this guy, his name was Curtis Wright. He was in charge of the FDA approval for this medicine. Based off of no data, basically, he had the FDA put a label on the Oxycontin saying – it's not. It's essentially not addictive. That Purdue Pharma could leverage and show to doctors saying, we have a special label. This is a non-addictive opioid because of its delayed absorption. And then right after he does it, he quits and he takes a job at Purdue Pharma making almost twice as much money. His name was Curtis Wright. He's a real, real loser. Okay. And then you have all the pill mills. So you had doctors writing. And so this is like this is like bad doctor behavior, right? So you had doctors writing pills for cash, pills for sex. Pills for farm labor was one that I found. 
you would have clinics and pharmacies where the whole street and neighborhood would have a line of out-of-state cars, and they were all just going to the pharmacy to pick up um, OxyContin prescriptions. These pharmacies would actually take – they'd fill up bottles, and they'd line up the bottles at the beginning of the day, and people would just drive in, hand them cash, and they'd hand them a bottle. So there's like these pill mill setups. There's another one where actual cartels paid doctors – to sit in clinics and then they would have homeless people. They'd give homeless people like 20 bucks or I think it was like $25 and they would drive them. They'd go to their appointment. They'd get their script. They'd go fill their script. They give the script to the drug dealer and then they get to keep 25 bucks. And they did this with all these homeless people ever. So it's stuff like that. These, these pill mill setups, they're all over the place. They're really bad in Ohio, West Virginia, and they were elsewhere as well. So, and that's all that's doctors, that's pharmacists. So those, those are bad, bad folks. Multiple medical organizations actually kind of got caught up in financial conflicts of interest with these drug companies, including the Joint Commission, who's still around and, for the record, denies any fault to this day. Joint Commission sucks, but whatever. I probably shouldn't say that on the air. They need to at least admit some fault in this. So what had happened was Purdue Pharma was basically donating them money, and then they gave Purdue Pharma kind of the exclusive right to put out education materials on this sort of pain treatment push that they were doing. So they didn't like come up with pain as the fifth vital sign, but they were the one who pushed that hospitals need to be treating pain, listening to how patients report pain, all of this. And you know how hospitals are. If the joint commission says anything, all these administrators like lose their shit. And then you just start doing crazy stuff like hiding your water when the joint commission is there. Right. Even though it makes no, it makes no sense. It's the same type of thing just because the joint commission got involved and then Purdue pharma was able to, to put out educational materials through them and people just bought it. But there was other organizations as well. The American pain, Foundation, the American Pain Society, organizations like that, who essentially were, I want to say like the American Pain Foundation was over 90% of its funding came from these um, drug companies. And uh, it would be kind of disguised through speakers fees and things like that. And there's ways to kind of cover it. But you had these organizations putting out all of this material and all this content. Imagine ASAP or AEM was doing that. <laughs> so not related to this, but you know, some of these organizations are you know, certainly in bed with um, big companies. <laughs> Let's just put it like that, um, especially at ASAP. But hey, whatever. We're going to move up. We're not, we're not going there. The drug companies leveraged those donations that those organizations had become accustomed to to get them to put out things maybe that they didn't quite – right? You get that financial conflict of interest and then they own your soul type of a thing and that totally happened. You have the whole time this is going on. This is something that's interesting looking to like nonprofit hospitals. So it's something called the Loan Index. This is a guy who won a Nobel Peace Prize that put this out recently. So there's an $18 billion fair share deficit by nonprofit hospitals. You would think if anyone was taking care of these patients, all of these patients who are suffering from opiate addiction would be the nonprofit, like the Catholic hospitals and things like that. But here's the thing. There's an $18 billion fair share deficit. And what that means is these nonprofit hospitals received $18 billion more in tax breaks from their nonprofit status than they reinvested in their community. The way that these hospitals kind of excuse it is they say, well, we were taking care of a lot more Medicaid patients and doing more GME, um, which may make some sense, except for the fact that the for-profit hospitals are also taking care of Medicaid patients and doing GME. And so an $18 billion fair share deficit, that's just cash that, that taxpayers were giving to these hospitals and tax deductions that these hospitals, you know, like could have been used to treat this. And they were just kind of, they didn't, like they didn't, they, you know, okay. So there's that. Um, and then you just have like 
kind of lazy and stupid doctors. So again, there was like no, like there was like no data to say like almost nothing, nothing. And it was like sketchy, low level quality evidence. Like it was just bad to say that giving opioids to patients with pain isn't something that doesn't cause addiction that you can do openly and freely. And now we think that's crazy. But back then, that's what they were saying. There was no data. And doctors just bought this. Purdue Pharma was putting on, it was like five pain seminars a day in places like Boca Raton. And they would invite doctors out on these all-exclusive trips. And then they would teach them about pain. They would teach them about their product because they knew that doctors were more likely pre to prescribe pills and hand out the 30-day coupons and things like that once they go to these seminars. So doctors went on all these vacations just completely naive to the fact that it could actually impact their prescribing behavior, which it, it absolutely did. And then they, there was no data to say that it was safe. And they just, they, I don't know. I don't get it. Like I wasn't there at the time. I honestly, I honestly, I don't get how this could happen. Um, as someone who reads studies, like there had to have been some, some evidence and there just wasn't <laughs> like, I don't know, email me if there was something, but it was based off this letter to the editor and a couple like pharmaceutical kind of sketchy studies where the conclusions didn't match the results. Like it's just weird stuff like that. You have doctors and you still see this sometimes they just do the easy thing, right? Like the patient wants pain medicine, fine, take the pain medicine, next patient, kind of the stresses of the job and that burnout and just giving people what they want. So you see a lot of that. Me too. I, I kind of blame myself in a lot of ways for this. I mean, now I don't know how it is that I'm five years into my attending hood and I'm only now just starting to really learn about the leading cause of death in the United States. Like I'm an emergency medicine doctor. You think I would know more about this? And I really didn't. And it, it's... It's something that I I get upset about. But anyways, that's the second reason you should care. The first reason is people dying. The second reason is because this whole thing was started by all the dysfunction of American medicine, right? And now you see the same thing playing out in other countries as well. Okay, so that's why you should care. Second, what is opiate use disorder? So what is this disorder that's causing people to die? Is it just, is it just uh, you know, euphoria and bad behavior. You hear people say it's a disease, that it's hijacked brain chemistry, but no one really says what it is. So what exactly is going on? So it's five things. So the first, and this is all stuff you've probably learned in neuroanatomy. So there's a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. It's kind of the pleasure and motivation center. It runs on dopamine, right? And so when you first use drugs, like you're going to spike all this dopamine there, and certainly you're going to feel pleasure. Like you're going to feel euphoric. That is, that is kind of part of what initially hooks you, but that's not the, the underlying physiology of the addiction. That's not why like mo some mom is like shooting up while her kid's screaming on the floor. Like what happened there? Like something's not right, right? Is it just behavior? No. So what's happening? You don't just have no dopamine in the nucleus accumbens and every time you do something pleasurable, it spikes up. The way it works is you probably have about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine at any given time kind of floating around in the nucleus accumbens. That's kind of your baseline motivation status. Think, you know, I'm waking up in the morning. I'm going to go to work. I'm not sick. Uh, I'm not working with anyone I hate, you know, it's just kind of a normal what, whatever, blah kind of day. I'm going to eat my, my granola bar and go to work. That would be kind of 50 nanograms per deciliter. But there's a range as well. So let's say you have a good meal or you have a really good day and a patient gives you a compliment or that kind of thing. That'll kind of drift up to maybe 100 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine. If you're kind of having a bad day, those days where you kind of, it's just kind of a rainy day, you feel like laying in bed, you don't have a lot of motivation, you're probably sitting somewhere around 40 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine for whatever reason. So there's kind of this baseline level in this normal range that the body has. 
when you use all drugs of abuse, not just opioids, but we're talking about opiates today, you cause this huge surge of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, you know, if we we're talking about 50 to 100 before, you're talking maybe 1,000, okay? The body knows, the brain knows that you can't live with, it, like, it, it breaks the scale. Like, it's not, it's supposed to be within a certain range. And so you can look at functional MRIs. They have all sorts of studies. The nucleus accumbens will downregulate its dopamine receptors. And so what ends up happening is if you're using, if you use the drugs consistently, like if you took, had a free 30-day supply of Oxycontin, right, in, you know, for your, your sprained ankle, your body downregulates the dopamine receptors there so that, what happens is you actually rest. You're not at 40 to 100 anymore. You're resting somewhere around 20 nanograms per deciliter. And then if you use the opiates, it puts you into that normal range, you know, 50, 60, somewhere in there. And so it's not the patients who are, who are truly addicted, not the first where you're just kind of abusing it and friends are giving it to you and you're just a stupid kid, right? Like there's that piece of it. But when you're truly addicted, what's happening is you don't feel like you have the energy or the motivation to do anything. It's like you're, you want to call into work sick and you're just that kind of feeling unless you use, in which case you feel normal. Now they feel like they're getting high, but they're not actually getting high. They're actually just feeling as good as you or I feel right now listening to this, right? It just pops into that normal range. So that's one part of this. Another part of this is we always think about the mu opiate receptor, but there's other Opiates bind other things in the brain. One of them is something called the kappa opiate receptor. So this is a receptor that causes um, and triggers kind of dysphoria and depression, okay? And the evolutionary, like, why this exists, I don't think people really – I haven't found any reason why this – we know this is there. They're actually studying – antagonists of this receptor in the treatment of depression. So instead of like kind of serotonin and things like that, they're actually treating like kappa opiate receptor antagonists as like novel therapies for depression because it using opiates actually causes you to feel hopeless. So it makes you feel like you don't have motivation unless you lose and then it unless you use and then it kind of starts to, to make you depressed and you have that hopelessness set in. And that's from that kappa opiate receptor activation. Then you have the locus ceruleus where you get that. This is what the um, like the withdrawal part of this. So you have essentially uh, norepinephrine locus ceruleus. The locus ceruleus is kind of that flight or fight, that that oh, awakeness, that awareness type part of the brain. As you know, when you see people use opiates, they're sleepy, they're drowsy, they're not aware of their surroundings, that kind of thing. But again, the brain knows that that's not a safe place to be. And so it actually upregulates a lot of the enzymes in this part of the brain so that your norepinephrine shifts kind of to a, a more alert level. Like it just the body wants you to be awake <laughs> basically most of the day type of a thing when you're using the opiate. So even if you use, you kind of shift and you're still awake and you increase that, that tolerance to where you're not falling asleep. However, if you ever stop using, you have so many enzymes in the locus ceruleus that you get this huge surge of norepinephrine. And so when we talk about opiate withdrawal, essentially it's like this crazy unregulated fight or flight response that you're feeling. It's like you're laying in bed peacefully at night and all of a sudden someone breaks into your house and you're going to get like purged, right? And they have a mask and like a machete and like you hear your kids scream, like that kind of, there's just that inner, like that terror, you break on a sweat, your pupils dilated, your heart's pounding, like that's a lot of the symptoms that you're seeing with opiate withdrawal. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. You feel like you're going to die, even though um, usually you don't die directly from the opiate withdrawal. 
itself. But that's so there's that piece of this. So you don't have any motivation to literally even get out of bed unless you use, in which case you can feel normal like you or me. You're depressed and hopeless, and you know, you lack that kind of future planning. And then if you ever don't use, you feel the worst sickness that you've ever felt. And you're, it's almost like terrifying. The fourth thing that happens is so all these drugs of abuse in diff- via different mechanisms damage the prefrontal cortex of the brain. So you get, become impulsive, right? Like, and you've heard all sorts of stories that people what, like got a nail gun in the, the front of the brain and things like that. But you become extremely impulsive uh, due to the use of these opioids. So you feel like you can't get out of bed unless you use. You um, are depressed. You're not planning for the future. You feel sick as shit if you don't use. And you're impulsive now, right? And then the fifth thing that happens is actually epigenetics. So like it actually changes – when you use drugs, it actually changes who you, who you are. So here's the way it's, there's kind of two things to talk about here. So first of all, your genes affect your drug experience and your, your, um, the way you, you perceive the use of the drug. And I'll give you an example that's kind of classic that you'll hear about. So like tramadol and codeine. So tramadol and codeine in and of themselves aren't analgesics. You'll see them prescribed for that, but they're not analgesics in and of themselves. It's their breakdown product that is. And um, the, one of the reasons they've fallen out of favor is because about 10% of Caucasians don't even have they don't even have the gene that encodes the enzyme to break these medicines down. So you give them tramadol or codeine and nothing happens. There's also a segment of the population that are super metabolized. They have an overactive version of this enzyme. So they take tramadol or codeine and they, they metabolize it instantly and they get this hit, right? Same drug, same age bracket, same risk factors, and you give it to one person and they don't feel anything, and you give it to another person and they feel high. So that would be like an example of how your genes can affect your per, your perception of drugs. But it's um, the other thing is that it's not just which genes you have; it's epigenetics. It's what genes are turned on or off. Your environment, environmental stimuli, changes which genes are active. Any given time, most of your your genes are kind of tucked away and wrapped around histones and coiled up and things like that, and not being transcribed. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to be going on on spring break, and I'm going to be getting lots of sun and, and burning, right, and getting burned and tanned, and you know, probably mostly burned. So I'm going to be laying out there on the beach, and the sun's going to be baking down, and that environmental stimuli is going to cause my genes to turn on that produce melanin and repair damaged, blistered red skin, right? And then so you get this environmental activation of that, and then once that environmental stimuli goes away, those transcription factors disappear, and I turn pale again, okay? I'm very, very white, you guys. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... Your genes and which genes turn your genes affect your experience with drugs, and environmental stimuli affects which genes are active or not. So let's put both of these together now into what this has to do with the opiate use disorder. So they've discovered something called the molecular switch of addiction. It's called delta fos B. It's a transcription factor. So most transcription factors are short acting, right? You you get the environmental stimuli, your body releases them, you encode the stuff that you need to encode, then they have their normal half life and they break down and they go away once the environmental stimuli goes away. But delta fos B is a transcription factor that most of us don't even really necessarily have at baseline or very little of. And then every time you have a dose of Dilaudid or a Percocet, every single time you get just a little bit of this transcription factor. But unlike other 
others, Delta Fos B doesn't break down. Okay. It, it's got an exceedingly long, almost, it's not permanent, but an exceedingly long half-life. And so it can kind of accumulate. And so if you, for example, again, get a 30-day free supply of Oxycontin by Purdue Pharma, and you take that and you increase, you start to increase every bit by bit this Delta Fos B. So that transcription factor binds to different genes, like CDK5 is one, CFOS. I have pictures and stuff that in, in my lecture that I would be able to show you. But essentially, these genes are the genes that affect your likability of drugs, your craving of drugs. These genes are responsible for encoding environmental cueing. So this is why you could you would not use drugs for 20 years. You could be completely in recovery. You haven't, it hasn't even crossed your mind. And then some, you know, a purple Saturn or something. I don't know. What do drug dealers drive, you guys? I don't know. Some, some we're going with a Geo Metro, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm going to get sued by all these car companies. They're like, don't associate that with us. Um, whatever. Your drug dealer's old car drives by, even though it's not them, and it immediately causes you to crave. It's because you have the the this sort of permanent environmental cueing that's been built up by these long-acting transcription factors. And so... You don't have the motivation to get out of bed. You're depressed without insight in the future. You get sick as shit if you don't use. You're impulsive, and it basically never goes away. So that's essentially what's happening. Those would be, like I would say, the five core changes that occur in opiate use disorder. And with that said, let me ask you, if you were in that situation, would you need a doctor to help you? Would you be like, man, I hope there's some medicine that can treat this? Because I'll tell you what, if that was me, I sure as hell wouldn't be able to stop using. Maybe you're stronger willed than me, but don't forget your strong will goes away once your prefrontal cortex goes out. I'm pretty sure I would be hopelessly addicted and on my way to an early death if someone didn't help me. And so that is what opiate use disorder is. And then the final thing that I want to talk about is we actually have treatment that works and it's called buprenorphine. Common brand names of buprenorphine would be Suboxone, Subutex, Zubsolve. There's an injectable one now called Sublocade. Frequently you'll see it, but the, the, the active ingredient, the generic, is buprenorphine. Commonly you'll see it dosed or written as like buprenorphine, 8 milligrams, naloxone, 2 milligrams. But you can kind of just ignore that naloxone part because all of the clinical effect of that of like a suboxone, let's say, is due to the buprenorphine piece of it. That naloxone piece is purely there as a deterrent. If you take it as prescribed, it doesn't have like oral or sublingual bioavailability. If you were to like whatever, however you would modify it, melt it or something and inject it, you would actually have two milligrams of naloxone mixed in with it and it costs you to, you know how naloxone works, right? So that's that's commonly how you'll see it. So you can just ignore the naloxone part. It has two things that are unique about it. So one, it's a partial opiate agonist. And pragmatically, what this means is not that it's not euphoric, not that it doesn't slow down your respiratory rate, and in theory, you could, you could overdose on it, but it, it has a plateau effect, okay? That's what a lot of these studies show. There's like this initial, and then there's a plateau. And it's because of this partial opiate agonist effect of the buprenorphine. The other thing is it has a very high receptor affinity. So it binds to opiate receptors stronger than fentanyl does, stronger than Dilaudid does, stronger than Percocet does, stronger than heroin does, right? Stronger, I think... Well, yeah, stronger than methadone. I think it's even stronger than like the naloxone. Um, I haven't read as much about that. But anyways, it has this very high receptor affinity. And because of these two things, three nice 
wonderful, beautiful clinical outcomes. It protects patients from overdosing. It protects them from mortality and it protects them from relapsing. So again, how does it protect them from overdose? It has, it has to do with the combination of that partial opiate agonist effect and that strong receptor affinity. So you get to that plateau stage of the buprenorphine, which usually isn't enough to make you go completely apneic unless you were mixing it with a bunch of alcohol and benzos and all other stuff, okay? But generally speaking, just that isn't going to make you apneic enough to, to overdose and die. And then it binds on, it just holds on to those receptors. So it protects you from overdose. So if you use fentanyl or you use heroin while you have this in your system, nothing happens because it can't bind to the receptor as well. Um, it depends a little bit there again, I go into more detail on this lecture, but that's the general idea is it protects you from overdosing because fentanyl can't kick off buprenorphine. That actually does result in like a clinically significant decrease in mortality. So like I said before, your one year mortality after a non-fatal overdose is about 5%, about one in 20. When you get those people started on buprenorphine, it drops to around um, like one in 33. So you go from like a 5% mortality to like a 3% mortality. It's a number needed to treat a 52 to prevent mortality is based off of my calculations from looking at these studies. And again, it's because you're decreasing, well, you, d you decrease the cravings and stuff because it's a partial opiate agonist. So you're less likely to get the infectious things, but it's the big player here is that it's decreasing your, your overdose risk. The third thing it protects you from is from relapse. So extensive amounts of studies have been done on this. There's actually been two Cochrane reviews on this. The first one came out in 2008, and then there was so much more data in addition to that that they put out another one. I want to say it was 2014. Five of those randomized control trials were specifically what kind of backs up what I'm saying now, which is this number needed to treat um, of two for buprenorphine compared to placebo for treatment retention. So for as like, as long as the study goes, um, and it can also, so for as long as the study goes, patients are still following up at appointments and with drug-free urines is kind of my understanding of reading this. And it's a number needed to treat of two based off the individual study. One study was like a year, one was six months. So that's kind of the length of time we're talking there. It protects patients from overdosing. It protects patients from dying. It protects patients from relapse. Now, you say, well, a number needed to treat of 53 for mortality and two for um, sustained, like, follow-up and um, staying in recovery. How good is that exactly? And the answer is it's really good. See, we think, and especially as med students and residents, you think that everything you do matters. And the, and the truth of it is really a lot of it doesn't. And even the things that you do that do matter, it's not like you give this medicine and like a life is saved. Like there's a certain proportion, there's a certain number of times, there's a certain number needed to treat for every therapy that we do for it to have an effect. There's also a certain number needed to harm with a lot of them as well. And so again, 53 mortality, number needed to treat of two for treatment retention, ACLS medicines, there's no benefit to them. You guys, we do them all the time. Heparin, for acute coronary syndrome, it's never been shown to have any significant benefit. Antibiotics for diverticulitis, no benefit. Also, tamivir for influenza, it may decrease symptom duration, but there's no like mortality benefit or anything. Um, antacids for upper GI bleed, no benefit. Okay, these are I'm giving these as examples of things that we do all the time that don't even work. Okay, so aspirin for STEMI, so you have to give 42 STEMI patients an aspirin to prevent one mortality. Um, so that would be kind of in a similar 
you know, a similar range, 42, 53, right? Okay, so you're kind of, buprenorphine is about as effective for treating opiate use disorder and preventing death as aspirin is um, in STEMI. Um, antihypertensives in patients with high blood pressure. So you're talking about, a, you know, 125 patients you need to treat to prevent one death. Statins in patients with known heart disease, you're talking about 83 patients you'd have to treat to prevent a death. There's other things that work a little better too, like steroids for croup. You give it seven times, you'll prevent one hospitalization. Magnesium for preeclampsia, you give it 90 times to prevent a seizure in the mom and there's no effect on baby um, with any of the magnesium, you know, things like that. So... Buprenorphine is one of the most, the best medicines that we have for its respective indication and for preventing mortality that we even have in medicine. And we barely prescribe it, which is kind of a little crazy. We have treatments that work, is what I'm saying. A few couple things before we close. Those are the main points I wanted to get through. So um, the two biggest counter arguments. So one is that you're switching out one drug for another. You hear people say this all the time. Patients think this. Patients feel this. Um... I want my, I've heard, I've never been to NA, but I've heard that at NA, this is something that they kind of say as well. You're switching out one drug for another. No, you're not. You're switching out one opioid for a different opioid um, that has different pharmacokinetic characteristics, different effects. So first of all, let's just say you were switching out one drug for another. At the very least, that means you're switching out one, you're switching out opiate addiction for opiate dependence. Because when you're taking a prescription buprenorphine, right, let's just say it still makes you high, but just based off the fact that it's dosed, you're cutting out all of your injected injection infection risks, you're cutting out your overdose risks, all of that kind of stuff. So you're switching that kind of unstable, highly risky opiate addiction behavior for an opiate dependence even if you thought it makes you euphoric, which it doesn't, because as I went through before, it actually just makes you feel normal. And that's kind of what buprenorphine does. It kind of just affects the opiate receptor just enough to get you into that normal kind of motivation dopamine level in the nucleus accumbens that you were at before you messed up your brain from using 30 days of free Oxycontin, right? So that's that piece of it. You, you're not switching one drug for another. You're trading an opiate addiction, all the risks associated with that, with an opiate dependence. And you have to ignore that subtle claim in there that somehow these patients, like, like there's this hidden meaning in that. It's like you're switching out one drug for another as if like being on that drug is making them high and euphoric and that somehow it's bad behavior, but it's not. Because once you have like real opiate addiction, you're not getting high from buprenorphine. Okay, so that that's part of it. The other... Thing that I would like to counter argue here, and this is the most common that I've heard as I've lectured on this. This is the most common that I got at the hospital I was at, the most common I get locally when I kind of curbside people. And it's that in the ER, we are flooded with patients. We have hall beds. The whole system is on. Well, I mean, it's basically already falling apart. We just don't realize it yet, but the whole system's completely collapsing. How can we possibly take this on as well? And it's a good point. But um, what I would propose to you look into, so buprenorphine in the treatment of patients who have had non-fatal overdoses specifically and in the treatment of opiate use disorder decreases hospitalizations and it decreases ED utilization and only takes maybe 10 extra minutes to of total of your time to get them started on that. So they're already in the ER. And then if you spend 10 more times with them, you can prevent an ER, one ER admission in the in the following year and about a half of a hospitalization in the following year. And you say, well, what about why does hospitalizations matter? Well, that's where your boarding comes from, right? If you can keep these people out of the hospital, you can keep them out of the ER, you're actually decreasing your volume. 
Okay. And you're not just decreasing. So you're decreasing your volume in a way that you can better manage your, the, the, the conditions of your community. Cause these people are now on appropriate therapy, but you also get a financial benefit there too, because you shift your payer mix. A lot of these patients are Medicaid, which you lose money on or uninsured completely. And that you basically are doing charity care for them. And when you, when you keep these people out of the ER, when you keep them out of the hospital, you're actually shifting your payer mix without moving where you're at and you make more money. So it's something that like can actually make your hospital. I feel like in theory money by that shift that happens, although there's been no studies that show that. The other thing that I can say is that when you start people on buprenorphine, it has been shown to be cost-saving for your community. So almost no drugs are actually cost-saving. They all cost something to get an outcome, right? There's a handful that actually are such good investments that they pay for themselves. So immunizations are an example. A lot of like the pediatric screening type stuff would be an example. Anytime, like any counseling that a doctor does pays for itself because it's not that expensive to spend five minutes talking to somebody about smoking. And if you can get them to stop smoking, you save like all of this money down the road, right? So that can be like a very high bang for your buck type thing. And actually in um, STD testing would be another one because again, you're not just treating them, but they spread it to other people. So you get all of the, everyone treated with like a single test. So those would be like high, highly um, cost-saving interventions. Um, things like colonoscopies and mammography and stuff, they're, they're pretty cheap, but they still cost money to do and they don't pay for themselves. But buprenorphine is actually one of the medicines that pays for itself. And it has a special effect that most other medicines don't have, which is the fact that it, it results in decreased crime and multiple studies have shown that it decreases crime, right? And crime is very, very expensive because you have to think the cost of policing, the cost of putting people in jail and the litigating of it and all of that, every buprenorphine prescription, I have data on this, every buprenorphine prescription that you prescribe results and can get, and you can get a patient on this. It saves your community about $60,000 lifetime. And that $60,000, I mean, you can use that to fund a, uh, your food bank or to pave the road or, you know, whatever like that, even though it's not directly benefiting us, that's still benefiting your community that you live in. And that makes your community nicer. And all of that to say, I, I do think that it is a good use of our time in the ED to start this because we will decrease further ED presentations, will decrease hospitalizations, and will benefit our communities and make our that I can get my pothole paved over. And that's really what this all comes down to. Why should we care? Because I want my pothole filled in because it's so bumpy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, so that wraps it up. I know this was a long episode. Thanks for hanging with me. Again, hopefully sometime I can give you this, the full version of this lecture with the pictures and everything, it, it, you know, we go into a lot more detail and things like that. Um, send me an email, Zach at emclerkship.com. What you do really does matter. And until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.